Merge by MP3 Toolkit. In that wonderful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Just a couple things before we get into the message today. I uh, just wanted to recap a little bit how many people... Uh, joined us. You don't have to raise your hands. In the week of prayer and fasting last week, I hope many people did and found it to be a time of pressing into God as we fasted from different types of things for different types of reasons. And I hope that for many of you uh, also, I I wanted to do a test today. I'm not going to do it on the vision statement, but we'll, we'll do that at some point. I hope that that's getting in your bones and in your mind and in your heart. Uh, of what the Lord is doing here at New Life, what God has called New Life to a long time before I ever came to this place, to reach this community with the love and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We also had a great time for those of you who were here. How many people were here? Raise your hands if you were here on Friday night and got it in in prayer. Amen? Amen. It was a wonderful time with Restoration Church, which is our neighbor church right up on Rising Sun Avenue and... We prayed and we sang to the Lord and had a great time in him. Um, uh, The one other thing I just want to do a minute is just tell you a little bit more uh, of why I'm going to Malawi. Some of you are like, well, what is Malawi? Okay, let me tell you what Malawi is. Malawi is a country in southeastern Africa. It is right below Tanzania. It's next to Zambia. It's surrounded on the east and south by Mozambique as well. It's a landlocked country. It is, by many uh, ways of looking at it, the poorest country in the world. It's certainly among the poorest countries in the world. But it is a place where the hunger for the gospel is off the charts. Amen. Um, The population of Malawi in 2000 was somewhere around 10 million. Now it's nearing 20 million. By the end of this century, there will be 100 million people living in this little country about the size of New Jersey. And so the population is growing there, and God is at work. And so we have started several years ago. uh, It's led by indigenous Malawians, Pastor Robert Monda, the Pastoral Training Institute of Malawi. Uh, 95% of the teaching and ministry there is done indigenously by Africans, to Africans, for the African church. Amen? We have come alongside, and we have a nonprofit corporation on this side of the ocean now to just help them and to say, what do you need? How can we help? And that is what we're doing. And so I'm going uh, this week, and there will be a graduation of our second cohort of church planters. Ten men will be graduating. Uh, Previously, we had, uh, I think, nine other men have graduated as well. We do small cohorts so that it is discipleship that's happening Jesus is being downloaded into other uh, men who are called to plant churches in the hardest places to plant. And in these four years, we've seen over 25 churches planted already. Amen. We're looking to see over the next couple decades, hundreds of churches planted through this. And now other countries are looking at the model of what we're doing in terms of empowering the indigenous church to do the training, because you know what? I go over there and train, and I love it, and they love it, but the reality is most of the training needs to come from indigenous folks because they know the culture better. They'll know it better than I'll ever know it in a million years. And so we love the model of what uh, we're doing, and uh, do pray for me. Um, 
Tim and Amy just asked my wife if she was ready, if she was okay for me to go. She said, no, I'm not ready. I was really glad to hear that. Because if she said, yeah, I can't wait for him to get out of the house, I would be a little scared. But, but she, she kind of wants me to stay, but she knows I need to go. So that's good. Amen. Well, let's get into the message today. Um, many of you kind of know me as a guy who is like a, a little bit, at least, of a Philadelphia guy now. I've been in Philly for uh, about 30 years. This is our 30th year in Philly, and I use words like John. Y'all know I do. Um, I love the lingo of Philly. I love the feel of Philly. I love so many things about Philly, but some of y'all who know me a little bit better also know that I got a little bit of country roots in me. And you know that uh, I came from Alabama. I lived in Mississippi. And at, at the heart, I'm still a country boy. I used to drive my kids crazy. We'd be listening to some great gospel music or so, some R&B or, or some pop music. And then I'd turn on my country station and it'd be like, oh, Dad, what are you doing to me? Why, why are you doing this to me? But, you know, here, here's, here's what I believe. I think they like some of that music. They just won't admit it. But... It's all good. Some of y'all do too. Um, but there is an old country song by a man named Johnny Lee, 1980. And the name of the song is Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Some of y'all know that song. And, and you'll have to excuse me if I go into a country twang as I say some of this. But he, he, the, the song starts by saying this. He said, I spent a lifetime looking for you. Singles bars and good time lovers. See, I'm, I'm just going country on you. We're never true. Playing a fool's game, he said, and hoping to win. Telling those sweet lies again and again. And then he goes into the chorus. Don't mind me if I get on my little Nashville groove here. He says, I was looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. Don't hear this, Nashville. Don't take me away from new life. <laughs> Searching their eyes and looking for places of what I'm dreaming of. He said, hoping to find a friend or a lover. I bless the day I discover another heart. Looking for love. I hope Nashville doesn't get a hold of that. I'm staying here, y'all, even if they call on me. I'm staying here, I promise y'all. Listen, it, it's funny, but that song speaks to the core of the human problem and condition. We are a people who are easily, we easily find ourselves looking for love in all the wrong places. And the main point that I want to get through to you in this sermon today is simply this. God calls us to look for love in Him and to put our full confidence in Him for everything, both in life and in death. We can put all our confidence in the Lord and look to Him alone. Let's stand together. I want to read... Psalm 16 this morning. Psalm 16. I was, we, as you know, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount series. I was planning to just be in that series today. But 
the Lord just stopped me a couple weeks ago, and I know it was the grace of God who stopped me in this psalm because of what's happened in the last couple of weeks. I have needed what God has given me in this psalm. And so I pray, I know it was for me, and I pray for some of you, you'll, you'll find it was for you today. But let's, let's read the words starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Or take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Amen. The title for today's uh, sermon is simply this, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that you will help each and every person under the sound of my voice at this point to give our attention to what you want to say to us. We've already sung today and asked that the Holy Spirit would fill this place. We've sung and worshiped your name and talked about your greatness. And Lord, I pray that in the coming moments, as we hear your word, that you would break through whatever you need to break through in each and every heart to help us find our security, hope, power, grace, Love in you and you alone. So be with us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. This just happens to be the day I know that the uh, Sunday school has started also uh, talking about psalms and, and, and beginning to work through the psalms. And I didn't plan that at all, but I think the Holy Ghost planned that. Amen. Um, this psalm is... One of a few psalms that is categorized as a psalm of thanksgiving. And in particular, there's a subset in that genre of psalms of thanksgiving that's called uh, psalms of trust and confidence. This is a psalm where David is pouring out his heart to God in confidence. Some of the other psalms are some of your favorite psalms if you... Look for this particular genre, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 27 is right behind me in big letters there. 
Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That's what that Hebrew is right there. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Uh, Psalm 91, Psalm 121, some of many people's favorite psalms that speak of trust in the Lord, finding Him as the place of refuge, are in this same category of psalm. But I want to look at a couple things. First of all, I want to look at the psalm as a whole. And we're going to put a slide up here. I know you, that's probably too small to read, but that's okay. I want you to see a couple things about this psalm as we look at it. First of all, I have highlighted there in yellow. You can see the disposition of David in this psalm to indicate that everything about him is wrapped up in his relationship with the Lord. You see superlatives here. He says in verse 2, no good. I have no good apart from you. Not that you're most of my good, but I have no good apart from you. In verse 3, he says, to whom is all my delight. It's superlative. You look down in verse 8. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. In verse 9, my whole being rejoices. And in verse 11, I've highlighted pleasures forevermore. You see that what David has done in this psalm is that he has laid out for us that his whole hope is in the Lord. Amen? Everything's in one place. I put all my chips in on Jesus. I also want you to see what I've highlighted in whatever that other color is. Blue, green, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and there is just one way of breaking down this song. This is the outline, really, for my sermon today. I, there's many ways you could break it down, but this is one way that I think is helpful. So he starts out by speaking of the Lord as refuge. The Lord is the one I go to in times of trouble. In verse 5, he talks about the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. That is, he is my portion. He is my sustenance. The Lord is what I need to survive on. Without him, I can't survive. Verse 10, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In other words, he's saying that you're not only my hope in life, but you're my hope in death. That, that, that I don't have to fear what's on the other side of that grave anymore because you're there. And at the end of the psalm in verse 11, he says, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Everything I want, everything I need is in you, Lord. And so that's the big picture of what the Lord is telling us in this psalm. But I want to break it down bit by bit. So let's look at the first point. The Lord is your only refuge. Verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The psalm starts with this simple prayer. Preserve me, O Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It starts with this very simple prayer. Many of, some of the psalms uh, give us the, the, the setting for what was happening at the time that the psalm was written. Some of those we 
believe are exact, telling us exactly what was going on. Sometimes we're not sure if, if, if that's the real story or not. But here we have nothing to tell us the setting of the psalm. And so what happens many times with commentators is they look at the psalm and they tell us, therefore, this is probably what was going on. This one, the commentators are all over the place, but many of them say because of the nature of the beauty of this psalm of thanksgiving, they might say it must be that this was in a time of prosperity for David. I don't see any evidence of that in this psalm. It might be. I don't know. But look at how he starts. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In a time of prosperity, in a time of blessing, when things are all good, when life is, when you're living fat and good and everything is just right, you don't need a refuge. You need a refuge in a time of trouble. You need a refuge when the enemy is on your tail. You need a refuge in a time of difficulty. And he starts out this psalm by saying, I need your refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I I, I love that. And refuge is one of the main themes that you see in the Old Testament as it talks about who God is. God is our refuge, a very present help, he says in another psalm, in time of trouble. Look at verse Psalm 61. I love this psalm. He says, hear my cry, O God, verses 1 through 3. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. One one translation says, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, my strong tower from the enemy. When, When my heart is overwhelmed, where do I go? Who do I run to? What is the rock? That is what David is saying in this psalm, is that the one I run to is the Lord. That is the question, though, for each and every one of us. Where do you go when your heart is overwhelmed? There's a lot of places we can go. And if we be honest, there's a lot of places that we do go. Can somebody in this place say amen? All right, that's good, that's good. Some of them, some of the places we go are socially acceptable, morally neutral. They're just fine. Some of them we'd say, oh, that's sin, that's wrong, that's bad. Others we'd even say, oh, that's good. But if where we're going is a refuge and it's not the Lord, it's the wrong place. We, we may go to vegging out on television. Now, there's no necessarily great sin in doing that, but that's our way of coping with life and keeping us from going to the Lord. Someone, we may have vices with drugs, with alcohol, with other things, and some people say, oh, that's really bad. You should never do that. Same thing. It could be the same thing in some ways. It could be more harmful to us. Some of us may do things that will get lauded as being good things. We may just put our work into our jobs, into our career in a way where we overcompensate in every way. And people say, man, 
That guy's really got it going on. Guess what? Your refuge is your work. Your refuge is your reputation. Your refuge is all these things. Your refuge isn't God anymore. It's the wrong place. So we can put refuges in all kinds of different places. Now, maybe I didn't hit your refuge today, but I want you to think about that. What is it? Here's a definition for a refuge. A refuge is your feel-good place when you're under duress. A refuge is your feel-good place. This is where I'm going to hide. This is where I'm going to feel good for a little while. This is where... Uh, nothing's going to hit me for a while. This is my refuge. It's my feel-good place under duress. So David goes on in this psalm, in verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I I I love that because this tells the real story. You'll notice Uh, In the first instance, when he says, I say to the Lord, that in most of your Bibles and on the board is in capital letters. When you see the word Lord in capital letters in your Bible, that is referring to the covenant name that God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, Yahweh. I say to Yahweh, the covenant name, you are my Lord. Now that's in small letters except for the L. And when you see that in the Old Testament, it's referring to the word Adonai. And Adonai means my ruler. It means my governor. It means uh, my king. It means the sovereign master who is over me. And so he says, I say to you, Yahweh, covenant God, the one who came for me to take me out of my slavery, I say to you, Yahweh, you are my master, you are my ruler, you are my king. And I have no good apart from you. No good apart from you. He's recognizing here that it is Yahweh. It is God. It is the Lord. We would say it is Jesus. And the triune God is the one who is the only one who can do anything about my condition. I just need you, God. And he says, and I have no good apart from you. No good apart from you. Now, if we'll be honest, we can look at our lives and say, I got, maybe I have a lot of good things in my life. I hope you do. Let me, let me get that straight right here. I hope you have a lot of things in your life that you can look at and say, that's good. I like that. I hope if you're married, you can look at your wife and say, that's my good thing. Because if you look at her and say, I don't know, that's not good. So I hope if you're married, you got a good thing. I hope if you have your health right now, that you can appreciate it. Some of y'all saw me last week limping around. I had some arthritis in my foot, some gout. It was not fun. I wasn't saying, oh, this is a good thing. I just love gout. I don't like it. I can't walk when I have it. So, uh, but I hope that you have many things in your life that you can look at as good. You also will have many things that are difficulties. Amen? 
But, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that David understood. Here's the thing that you need to understand. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every good thing you have comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow, in whom there is no change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you have a good thing in your life, it came from God. That's why he can say, no good thing do I have apart from you. In verse 3, he goes on and he demonstrates the delight in his relationships with the covenant community of God's people. As for the saints of the land, he says, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love this. He calls the people of God the saints. The Hebrew term is kadoshim. It comes from the adjective kadosh, which means holy. And so when he's saying that he He loves the saints. They're the excellent ones. He's saying, these are the kadoshim. These are the set-apart ones. These are the holy ones of God. He's not saying the holy rollers or the hypocrites or the judgmental, narrow-minded haters, but those who are pursuing God for real. That's whom he's delighting in. That's where his delight is. He sees the beauty in this. Listen, Finding refuge in the Lord, in part, is finding refuge in the people of God. You can't separate that. Brothers and sisters, let me say this. The direction of your deepening relationships tells more about who you are than almost anything else in your life. Are you hearing me? I especially want our younger people. I want you to hear me. The direction of your deepening relationships tells more about who you are because your relationships that are building and deepening are about what you one day aspire to be. And so we need to be a people who pursue relationship with safe, godly people. And that sounds like a strange term, safe, godly people. Let's get real for a second. We know that not all people that look real godly are real safe. Amen? Can I, can I be... Uh, anybody understand what I'm talking about right now? There are some people who... And, and maybe I've been one at times. Where I have not been aware enough of my own brokenness and my own sin to be safe to someone who's struggling. Amen? There are, it it is easy to be in a place as a quote-unquote holy one, godly person, saint, and at the same time be a person who inflicts great harm on those around you because you are holding them to a standard that you haven't even attained yourself. We need to gravitate, and I would encourage younger people to gravitate towards older people who are aware of just how broken they are and how desperately they need Jesus every day of their lives. What kinds of people are you building relationships with right now? If you're not allowing people, godly people, to speak into your life, 
you'll consistently find yourself looking for refuge and love in places that will destroy you and destroy those around you. But God is your true hope and refuge. I want to look at the second piece of this point too. The Lord is your perfect portion. Verses 5 through 8 looks at that. Let's look at verse 5 and 6 first. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These verses are telling us that it is God who takes care of us in life. He is our very sustenance. He starts by saying that the Lord is his portion and cup. That means he is my food and he is my drink. That means that my very life comes from taking in the Lord. Taking in my relationship with him. Not being far off, not just studying about him, but being in proximity to him. This past week, we went through John 15, 1 through 12, I I think during our time, or 1 through 17, forget what verse we ended on in our devotional time. But abiding in Christ, being with him, he's saying that the Lord is my portion and cup. He's my substance. Being with him gives life to me. Listen, we celebrate that reality Every first Sunday when we take communion, it's not just something that we do out of religious obligation. It is the realization that the living Christ is available to us. And he said, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. I want to be in you and I want to work through you. That's what we do when we take communion. In verse 5, again, he says, the end of that verse, you hold my lot. Now, we don't talk much about lots these days unless we're talking about property. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying you hold my, the deed to my property. He's saying you hold my lot. Lots were used in ancient times, kind of like we might use dice today. You use lots, and, and the lots would come up and give the decision. When you cast lots, it would make a decision. We see that in Acts chapter 2, when they're picking a new uh, apostle to replace Judas, they cast lots. But this was often the practice of the Old Testament when they needed to make a decision, believing that the Lord could lead even through that. Now, I would say to you, don't start throwing dice and say, if seven comes up, God is telling me. I'm not asking you to do that. In fact, I'm asking you not to do that. But what David is saying is that the Lord is the one who decides for me. And I'm happy with it. I trust him with it. I'm good with it. Listen, the Lord is the one who makes decisions for me. And he says, that's a good thing for me. It may not be what I like, but I trust you. It may not be on my scheduled time frame, but you, Lord, know best. It may not be what I prefer, but I trust you way more than I trust me. Is anyone learning to trust God more than you trust yourself? 
my goodness, I think of some of the dreams I've had, some of the things I've wanted, and not that they were even bad things, but if I got them in the time frame that I wanted to have them, I would have made a wreck of my life. God has kept me. We can talk about how God keeps us from the enemy, how God keeps us from the world. God is keeping you from yourself. He's keeping me from myself. He is my lot. Verse 6 says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I love this, I have a beautiful inheritance. In the Old Testament, your inheritance was everything. Uh, when, When the people of God left Egypt and after all that time in the wilderness, when they finally went into the promised land, Two and a half of the tribes were on one side of the Jordan River. The rest of them went on to the other side of the Jordan River. And God allotted an inheritance for each of the tribes. And then within your tribes, it would be by clans and by families that they would have an inheritance. And you knew who you were. Your identity was bound up in the realization of your inheritance. It it was so important in ancient Israel, your inheritance... That if for some reason you went into poverty and you had to sell it and lose it, there was provision in the law that you would get your inheritance back because your inheritance spoke of your identity. Who are you? And so we look at this idea of inheritance and he says, man, I have a beautiful inheritance. I wonder for some of us if we think that way, if we say that. Listen, if we buy into the world's idea or value system of inheritance, then it ain't like that for all of us here. I know that. Because in the world's system, rich is always going to be better. Now, there may be a couple rich of you in here. I don't know. I hope there are. And we'll do a sermon on tithing. No, we're not going to do that. But I don't know about rich people in here. But listen, in the world system, ease and comfort and power are always better than struggle and then difficulty and weakness. And if we allow the world's value system to say, my inheritance is good or bad, then we will be lost before we even get started. But listen, brothers and sisters, God has chosen the weak. God has chosen the vulnerable. God has chosen the poor. God has chosen the despised. God has chosen the disenfranchised to show forth his glory in this world. We don't look at inheritance the way the world looks at it. Our inheritance is in God himself. Let me talk to some folks right now. You don't understand your inheritance. There might be, and I'm not prophesying right now, but there might be, there might be a sister in here right now, and you are struggling with issues around your family, your family of origin. Why was I born into this family? I want to tell you today, God did not make God didn't make a mistake. Might be a brother in here today and you're going through a difficult, hard, 
depressing, overwhelming season and you're on the verge of losing hope. And I want to tell you right now that the God who is the Lord of the universe, who created and who redeems, is at work and he is well able to redeem your circumstance. You don't have to give up hope today. God is right here. Let me say this, the value of your inheritance will always be more tied to your perspective than to your circumstance. Do you get that? The value of your inheritance is not done by an economic or sociological means of determining the worth and value of what's around you, of what you have, of what your prospects are, but it is tied to your perspective in God. If you understand who this God is and what he is able to do, you can say with David, I have a beautiful inheritance. I I don't know about anybody else here, but I've got to confess this. I'm convinced I've spent way too much of my life, way too much of it, mourning my present reality and not enough of my life believing in God's promised eternal reality. Now, there is a time to grieve. There is a time to, we've got to admit our struggle. We've got to be real with God. But I am more than convinced That too many hours, too many days, too many minutes, too much of my life has been just not, has been mourning the present reality rather than looking and believing what God says in his word. You know, he gives us the end of what goes on and it is good. I hope you know that. It's a glorious end that we have. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. The Lord, he's saying, is right there for you. He's not far away. He's not hiding from you. He's the one that sticks closer than the brother. He's the one who will never leave you or forsake you. God speaks to us everything that we need to know. Look at this. Verse 7, he gives me counsel. Verse 7, at the end, he instructs me. God is a speaking God. He's not mute. He knows how to communicate. And he wants to communicate to you. David understands this. But many times, we just are not hearing from God. How many people have struggled at times? I'm going to raise my hand first. In fact, I'm going to raise both of my hands. How many of you have struggled at times like, I'm just not hearing from God? We've struggled with that at times. And there's a lot of reasons that can be sometimes God does. Just hide away for a while while we're working some stuff out. But what I've found is many times when I'm not hearing from God... Many times it's because I haven't done what he's told me to do in the first place. You want to get what one of my friends called a heavy revy from God? That's a heavy revelation. You want to get a heavy revy, but you're not doing the basic stuff he told you to do. 
You're walking in unrepentant sin away from God and looking for him to give you some deep revelation about something else. Got to start by obedience. So that's one reason that we can get clogged up in our hearing from God. Sometimes we've just backed away from him. Verse 8 says, I've set the Lord always before me. I've set the Lord always before me. What does that look like in your life? Here's one thing I know it looks like. It looks like getting your nose in this book. It looks like being in this Bible. Listen, if you are not in this word, then you are not setting the Lord always before you. If you say, but I'm always thinking of God. If you're not in this book, I have to ask, what God are you always thinking about? Because our thoughts of God go all over the place, but the God who's revealed himself has revealed himself in his word. And so as we know this word, as we imbibe this word, we come to know him. Got to get our noses in this book, y'all. Every person in this place has access to the Bible. Not everyone in the world does. We should thank God for it. And we better take advantage of it. So brothers and sisters, this is one thing I'm going to ask you today. Can you commit to giving God's word 10 more minutes of your day on a consistent basis? 10 more minutes. 10 minutes. Can you commit to doing that? Listen, God is your perfect portion. It doesn't make sense. If he has revealed himself to us, that we would not look to him for that revelation and then live for him. Let's look at the third point here now. The Lord is your final security. Verse 9 and 10. He says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. What he's saying here is that the promise towards you, towards God's people, David gets it, I hope we get it, is not just for this life, but it's in the life to come. We have a promise that is sure. We have a promise that is eternal. There is a final security in Christ that is eternal. I have good news and bad news for you today. Who wants the good news first? Too bad. I'm going to give you the bad news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that right now, you are in the process of dying. Oh, Lord, why did I come to church today? I'll tell the story real quick. My wife had open-heart surgery seven years ago. Uh, I wanted to bless her on the way to the hospital on an early Monday morning at 5.30, and I knew that Chuck Swindoll, a great preacher of the gospel, was on at 5.30 in the morning. And so my wife didn't know that. So as we get in the car, we go to the hospital. I see it's 5.30. I turn on. Chuck Swindoll, and here's his first words out of his mouth. He says, you are going to die. I no longer listen to Chuck Swindoll. Actually, he's a great preacher. I love him, but he messed it up that day. I I don't know what happened. 
But the reality for all of us is that we're going to die. You have an expiration date. I don't know what it is. Your doctor doesn't know what it is. You don't know what it is. Only the Lord knows what it is. But you have an expiration date. Hebrews puts it this way. It's appointed for all people to die once, but then comes the judgment. We're all going that way. That's the bad news. Nobody escapes it. But there's good news as well. And here's the good news. When you look to the Lord as your love, when you put your love in the right place in the Lord, death is nothing to be feared. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. I think we have it for the screen. Just look at these words. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? He's mocking death. Where is your victory, death? Oh, death, where's your sting? In other words, death, you ain't got nothing. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, when we understand that death has no power over the people of God, he says that motivates me to be steadfast, to be immovable, to abound in God's work. It's not just about when I die, I'm not going to go to hell or I'm not going to do this. It's about the fact that God has me. And because I know that, I can abound in his work in this life. What a blessing to know this. David said these words in Psalm 16 a thousand years earlier than Paul. He's, what he's saying is death doesn't scare me. I'm secure in God And death has no hold on me. Now, many of us know this part of the psalm because it's quoted in the New Testament as a messianic psalm that speaks about Jesus. It is that both Peter and Paul quote this psalm in the book of Acts to show the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You will not abandon my soul or let your Holy One see corruption. That is twice quoted in the New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ. And thank God for that. But we've got to understand this, that in the writing of this psalm, the Holy Spirit knew that 2,000 years or 1,000 years, approximately after David penned these words, that Jesus would come, that his Holy One would not undergo decay. But as David wrote these words, he was not fully aware of that reality, but he was aware that God would be there for him. His confidence was that God would be there for him. Many times when we see messianic prophecies, there are multiple fulfillments of that. Brothers and sisters, your physical end is not the death. Physical physical death for a disciple of Jesus is the beginning of a new, glorious, and eternal manifestation of life. Where we see God in all his glory and live in perfect communion with him and all of his people. Listen, when you look to God... For love, you no longer need to fear death. Death has been defanged. Somebody should be happy about that. The grave has lost its grip. God rules in life. God rules in death. God forever keeps those who put their trust in him. Now let's look at the last part of this psalm real quick. Last verse. The Lord is your full joy. 
He's your full joy. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When you stop looking for love in all the wrong places, you'll be able to find fullness of joy in the Lord. Verse 11 says, he's the path of life. It's a lot of different paths that life has for us and that we can be tempted to go down and that lead not to life but to death. They seem good, they seem right, but they don't lead towards the Lord. Proverbs 14, 12 puts it this way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads only to death. But there is a path in God that we find by trusting in him. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 puts it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. The path, the way, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The path is in him. We look to him as the path to our joy. He's the way maker. He can direct your path. And then he says... I love these words, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In other words, when we're in God's presence, there's not room for anything else. In your presence, joy is full. I don't don't know if anyone has had a, I, I do know most of you have had this. You have had a meal that you just loved so much that you couldn't stop eating, and even when you were full, you kept eating, and you were sorry later on. I know that's happened. That's happened to me. But if you think of when you are so full, and, and then there's a, a cherry cheesecake dessert at the end, it's like if, if I say no to that, then I know I am really full, right? Because I want that, but there's no more room. In the presence of the Lord, we are so full that there's no room for cherry cheesecake no more. Or if you go to the Outback Steakhouse, no chocolate thunder from down under, as much as I might want it. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. What does that mean? If you're in his presence, shame has to go. If you're in his presence, guilt has no place. If you're in his presence, regret does not belong there anymore. Sorrow has to flee. Jealousy, hatred, envy, bitterness, strife, sadness have no place. In the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Ah, David ends with those words, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If if you know the scripture when it talks of God's right hand, that is his hand of blessing, that is his hand of power. And what he's saying is, as as you look to me for love, you are right there, you're at my right hand. I put you, God says, at my right hand, the place of blessing and the place of power. God says, I've got something good for you. Are you living today for the pleasures of God, both now and forever? Or are you filling your life with trinkets of little treasures that evaporate like the morning dew? Listen, I want to encourage everybody in this place. I'm about to finish this thing up, but 
we so easily get caught up in little trinkets and treasures, little shiny things that make us say, oh, that looks so good, and cause us to walk away from vitality and relationship with the lover of your soul. I want to close with this scripture from Revelation 22. Paints a picture for us. This, brothers and sisters, if you'll put your hope in the Lord as you'll make him the one love, stop looking for love in all these other places, this is what you'll find. This is the vision that's before us. Scripture says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Wow, this incredible, beautiful water, bright as crystal, is flowing from the very presence of God and Jesus himself through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river. Look at this, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. In Genesis 3, the tree of life was there. In Genesis 2, it was there. But in 3, we were cut off from the tree of life. But he says, now it is yours. And I will bless this tree every month. There's a different kind of fruit. This is the eternal fruit of the month club. The leaves of the tree, he says, (laughs) the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's healing. There's healing in that tree. No longer will there be anything accursed. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in a world where there is nothing that is messy, nothing that is nasty, nothing that is cursed, but everything points to the glory of God? That's what you have for you. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. He says in verse 5, night will be no more. (laughs) There's no more darkness. And I love this. They won't need a lamp. They won't need the sun. For the Lord God will be their light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And they will reign forever. Brothers and sisters, God has a beautiful inheritance for us. God has something way beyond what we can imagine or hope for. But we need to become a people who start looking for love in the right place. Amen? Where are you looking for love and fulfillment today that God's saying, don't look there? Where are you Looking for love in a manner that's taking you away from the presence of this God who loves you so much. In just a few moments, we're going to have a time of prayer. And I invite, I'd love the prayer uh, folks to come up even now. If you could come up now, prayer team, right now. And if God has put something on your heart, I know this isn't something that New Life does that much, really. But I would really encourage you to come up for prayer. If there's just something on your heart, and we'll pray a 
prayer at the end, if it's put something, you know you're going somewhere else and you need to look for love in God and in Christ alone. I invite you to come up as the music plays. Let me pray and let's stand together right now. You can come up even now. If God has put something on your heart for prayer, let me pray. Father, help us to be a people who look for love in you and in you alone. Lord, we just admit that we can have so many Jesus substitutes in our lives that it doesn't even make any sense. We know better. But God, help us. Draw us again to yourself. Draw us again to the hope that is in you and you alone. Help us, O oh God, that our lives might show forth your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name.